Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. We've got week three previews ahead of you on the pod today. I'm Adam Ruffner, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Daniel Cohen. Daniel, we've got another sort of set-the-table weekend coming up where it feels like while these games might not be of utmost importance right now, they're going to be very telling for a lot of teams across the league as far as how their playoff hopes will come into focus and sort of what sort of tiebreaker advantages are going to be determined here in the first month of play. For sure. And I think there's there's like some sneaky upset potential in a handful of these games. So while it, it may seem like this weekend is is a little predictable, I don't think it's going to shake out that way. I think we're we're bound to see some surprises in week three. We were talking about it. That feels like one of those weekends where everything could just go to chalk. The expected favorites just hold serve and kind of win their matchups. But historically, when that has been the sort of perception going into an early season AUDL weekend, that's not how the reality <laughs> right. shakes out. And like you're saying, it's like what if one of these upsets happens, let alone two or three, then kind of chaos starts to come back into play. I feel like this last weekend, it was a lot of holding serve. I think maybe the one upset you might really pinpoint would be Colorado over Portland, but that felt like a toss-up going in. So it just... Yeah, Ottawa over Boston was a slight yeah. one too, but can, I mean, considering what Boston brought, yeah, I mean, yeah, that game I, was probably always going to be close. I liked Ottawa at home. For the energy sure. and the way to just sort of brawl, they've got their throwers with Boucher and Bevin. It we're we're at that point where it feels like the the power havers and the favorites are sort of holding serve with an early season season advantage as talent just sort of holds out, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But right, I mean, there's a lot of season left. I think we're we're just we're due for some crazy weeks to continue. And obviously week one was a tone setter with Salt Lake, who is back in action this week after not playing last week. They host Seattle at home for the Friday feature this Friday. I just am excited to see them again. I think we got we got a fun peek at them in their first two games to start the season, and then I've kind of missed them. I, I missed them last week. I want to see the expansion teams really in action every weekend. I just feel like the more games we get to see from them, the more sense of what their identity really is. And and with consistency playing such a big role, I think this year in the West Division with those expansion teams, just every additional game they get under their belt, it's just going to be very telling for how those standings shake out. Yeah, it. I just want to stress test each of the expansion teams. Having only <laughs> right. between the three of them with Portland, Salt Lake, and Colorado, and and they're five and one right now. By the way, against yeah. the West, uh, doing very well for expansion teams. I just, I kind of want to like run them each through a hundred game simulator of like what would you look like <laughs> in a hundred outcomes against San Diego? What would you look like in a hundred outcomes against LA? Like. I agree with yeah. you. It was so tantalizing to see Salt Lake's opening weekend performances and to have them away for a week. It just sort of builds up the drama, I think, for their return. Um, and especially for a home opener for 
a Salt Lake home environment that is being billed as electric, I think. Nothing short of. Um, I think there's a lot of hype in the local Utah community for this team. You hear it from the players that this is kind of an ability to represent the state that hasn't really been done before, um, at least with the kind of competitive level that I think that they've shown already. Um, yeah, and I just, I have a, a lot of excitement for Salt Lake tomorrow. And it looks like they're going to be bringing in pretty much their entire starting lineup uh, that we mm-hmm. saw from week one. No notable absences, maybe Devin Terry, who did a lot of defensive work for them in week one. Um, ben Green still not making his Salt Lake shred debut in 2022 yet, um, but everyone else will be active. Jordan Kerr, Joe Merrill, Joe Clutton, who made some incredible defensive plays for them in week one. Uh, Garrett Martin, who continues to be an anchor for their any D-line counterattack he's been a part of the past two years. Um, I, I don't know. And all of the, the young rookie talent on the shred team. There's just going to be so much to pay attention to again. I feel like, yeah, you just hit the nail on the head. It's like, we got some data, but now I want to see more of it. <laughs> right, right. And they were so exciting in that first week. And I feel like them coming back home, finally, for home opener, there's there's like a natural electricity to their team as a whole. And then you just compound that with playing in front of what should be a great home crowd. Yeah, there there's going to be... This game's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, Seattle is not going to roll over either. Like, they've put up a fight in their first two weeks, losing 29-24 to Portland and then falling to Colorado this past weekend, 19-16. to They haven't looked the most consistent, but... They're also keeping themselves in a lot of games, it feels like. And it feels like their offense, while they've been missing Manny Eckert each of the first two weeks, and he's out again this week, I I don't know, it kind of felt like coming into the season that they would just be in massive trouble not having so many reliable throwers on the offense. But what they're doing with just building everything around Declan Miller and really just letting him loose, they... I don't know. He has the skill set that is going to keep them in a lot of games. And I think he's proven that in the first two weeks when he set the, uh, not the yardage record, but became the first player ever to throw and receive for over 400 yards each in a single game that first week, and then followed it up with nearly 600 yards this past weekend. He's super exciting. They've got an, a good crop of exciting young players as well. Drew Swanson was getting downfield as a receiver on the D-line counterattack last weekend. There's there's some fun pieces in this Cascades, both offense and defense. And so how exactly they clash with Salt Lake, I think will be definitely interesting and, and something to watch for. I think uh, one thrower to watch for Seattle who wasn't active in week two is Leander Ramirez. He had a lot of connections with uh, Declan Miller and Zeppelin Ronig. Uh, two fellow rookies alongside Ramirez. Er, Ramirez actually played, I think, in seven. He's played in seven games last year, um, but mm. he looked radically different in his 2022 debut against Portland in week one. He had 29 completions, over 500 yards of total offense, three assists. He looked like a good connector piece for this Cascades team, as again, they'll be without their top throwers in Adam Simon and Manny Eckert, uh, the latter of whom has yet to play in 2022. And you mentioned Drew Swanson. I'm really interested to see if he can have any effect on Salt Lake's love of the huck game. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Salt Lake yeah. really able to stretch the field with their vertical attack. Um, they've got so many different ways to attack you. They can attack you from the backfield with their throws, but I think most readily they like to get Kerr the disc in sort of a striker position upfield and let his lefty power and range really take control of a game. Um, and I'm interested to see if Swanson, with his athleticism and his ability to bait uh, opposite field throws, I think he's mm-hmm. done that. I think he's kind of made a living off of that in the Central Division before he's come to Seattle. So I'm interested to see if he can get a couple of takeaways against Salt Lake with maybe a heady poach or something. He was he was without a block in uh, his debut this past week, which is yeah, it's weird. Swanson. I wrote about in the power rankings, it was just the fourth time in his now two-plus seasons of play over 20 career games where he hasn't recorded a takeaway in a game. Uh, I think for his career, he's averaging either close to or over two blocks a game. So Yeah, he's right around two. I, I know it's it was interesting not to see him record a block last week because Colorado wasn't, you know, they were very far from perfect against Seattle. But, you know, I think about I think about Salt Lake's offense and how, yes, they do huck and that is very much a part of their scheme. It's like all these like really timely in rhythm hucks. You know what I mean? Like they're all they're all very catching it. Yeah, they're very opportune. And and like, I don't think they're just going to take shots for the sake of taking shots, which makes it harder as a defender. Like if you're constantly up against just these very solid continuation hucks where, you know, it's just a lot of offensive flow and then that leads to a huck, that's a lot more difficult to defend. I kind of see Swanson potentially being more disruptive just in the intermediate space, like on underneath cuts. I think he can bring a ton of defensive pressure there. And I think he has the chance... Like, if he can get some early blocks specifically and he can help get Salt Lake out of rhythm, I think that would be Seattle's best chance of disrupting the shred. For how Salt Lake played in week one, though, it really feels like their game to lose. But as we said at the top of this podcast, if Seattle comes away with a road win here, which they haven't gotten in since the beginning of 2021, they went winless on the road last season. They lost to Portland in week one. Cascade's not known for their road performances, but they are kind of that team where anything can happen. I mean, they won against Dallas. <laughs> right. I don't think anyone saw that. Yeah. Uh, this they feels do. like one of those matchups where you look at some of the players absent on their team. You just kind of read the temperature of the division and how Salt Lake seems to be trending. And all of a sudden, Cascades have like a 6-4 first quarter lead or something. <laughs> right. Right. And with Salt Lake, because we have such a small sample size and, and no, I don't really doubt their ability. We, you know, we can't say they're a super consistent team at this point, just having seen two games. So maybe they have an off day. Maybe they're a little up and down this season. Like it's really it's still a wide open West division in my mind, just as we continue to see these offensive and defensive identities develop for all these teams. Do you think Salt Lake is capable of having a down period or stretch? Not right now. Yeah. <laughs> but but it is it's it could happen. It's within the realm of possibilities. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We'll, like we'll say, leave it at that. So little data, it could still be yet to be explored. Right. We could but, be way off in our shred hype. I mean We could be. We could be. But I again, we talked about this in the week one recap. They just they check too many boxes of what a real contender looks like. Those weren't 
you know, two back-to-back weeks of, you know, crazy playmaking from one person going way off and everyone else kind of feeding him. Granted, Jordan Kerr had MVP level numbers, but that was within the, like you were saying, that was within the flow of the system. That was within rhythm. The Hucks weren't 50-50 shots to Joe Merrill skying out people. It was him running in a straight line and pancake catching it, running away from people. Or Will Self just getting a back shoulder huck from Kerr. Like everything almost came easy. And it's not to say that the Shred didn't experience turnovers or have a couple of throwaways that very much looked like an expansion team, but they look They did throw a Callahan at one point. They did throw almost a walk into the end zone Callahan to KJ Koo, but. Yeah. KJ Koo will do that. He's, he's. One of those players who makes plays like that routinely, where it, it makes it, he makes it look so casual, and yet no one else right. in a position to make that play. <laughs> I will say, here's a, a fun little nugget you can pull out of the West Division standings. Of the teams that have lost at least one game, like every team has lost at home. If they've if they've lost at least one game, they have lost at home at this point. Basically, Salt Lake and Colorado are the undefeated teams at West. Everyone else has lost at home so far. So take that for what you will. He's trying to put some kind of bad mojo on Salt Lake. Right? <laughs> I'm just saying it's a it's a trend. It's a West Division. It's an well, it's an interesting one because we thought that yeah, home teams would be insane. so significantly I know, favored. I don't know if a road team's gonna ever win in road back to backs and now both yeah. expansion teams or two of the three right. expansion teams go on the road and go two and zero to start their franchises. Portland goes two and zero on their fo- first road trip. I'm just gonna lie down in the road for a bit (laughs) done making predictions about what happens in road environments in the west right no double header this weekend for seattle though it's just just the salt lake game they will not play on saturday and similarly it'll be salt lake's only game which is again it just feels like a little bit of putting a ball on a tee for the salt lake team after how they performed in a road environment to open the season where they get one game at home where they've had two weeks to prep for Seattle. Like this is a team that takes preparation, study, execution about as seriously as I think any team in the division, if not the league as a whole from how they came in scorching hot. And so getting that kind of ramp lead up to this game feels like it's going to be a big night in Salt Lake. So at the time of this recording, DraftKings lines are still not set, but I'm curious where you would set the line for this game. Four and a half, four and a half, negative four and a half Salt Lake. Maybe five and a half. Yeah, I was thinking maybe, maybe five, five and a half. I feel like I say five and a half and then Seattle will like cover in the final (laughs) quarter when they score like four goals in the final two minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, sure. It'll be like a seven goal game the rest of the time and then they'll just cover in the final two minutes. That's a Seattle team that we all know and love. Um, It is. Should we move on to the game of the week on Saturday night? Let's do it. Take us there. (laughs) Going back to the East Coast. Uh, We're going to see New York Empire at Boston Glory. The last time these two teams played was in week 13 in a makeup game uh, at the end of the regular season in 2021, which was very close. Uh, The first matchup between New York and Boston was uh, offensive heavy uh, shootout between the two teams in which the Empire just couldn't be stopped. But the second one at Boston was a little bit more contentious and felt like 
the New York Boston sports rivalry that is so prevalent and relevant relevant everywhere else in sports. Um, there felt mm-hmm. like there was a little bit of chippiness. It felt like each team wanted to make a play in response to the other. And I kind of feel like that's how it's going to be on Saturday night in Boston. I feel like given Boston's setback last week in Canada, going 0-2 on the road trip in Ottawa and Montreal, they're going to have to play with some kind of response because starting 1-3 for a team that was very, I think, pretty heavily favored to make the number three seed coming out of the East for the playoffs. That would that by would us be, at least. Yeah, yeah, by us, by us, by yeah. me. I'll say it. Yeah. Um, that would that would be a pretty staggering start to their twenty twenty two campaign. And I just yeah. there's for as poorly as they executed in Canada, I still feel like there's too much talent on Boston for them to just you know, put up back-to-back games of under 20 goals and not have a response this weekend when they get back Orion Cable and Jeff Graham and a host of other really notable stars. Uh, and on defense, they will get the debut of Cam Warner, who did a really nice job on Jack Williams and Ryan Osgar uh, in their later season matchups in 2021. So there are pieces to Boston that I think still will give New York trouble. And of course we get cable versus either Antoine Davis or Jeff Babbitt deep at some point during this game. That's, that's the matchup to circle right there. Right. I mean, especially after Boston just had the weekend that they did when they were really missing those bigs in Orion cable and Tanner Johnson, like you've pointed out, they didn't really change their game plan from a very huck heavy approach, but they really needed to. Uh, not not even debatably needed to like they they <laughs> that was their bread and butter in week one against Philly and it, it worked so well because they had those big guys downfield but without them it's just hard to to create something out of nothing when you don't have a, a six five monster downfield that can sky anyone so if if Orion Cable can get back into the rhythm we saw from him in week one I think glory is gonna be kept in this game but. Yeah, like you said, Babbitt, Antoine Davis, maybe Brownlee sees some of them. Like he, They've got this collection of big, deep defenders. And I believe Orion Cable is still the biggest of that group, but a, a younger player still, still developing. I, I also just want to see more consistency from Cable. Like I think he has a ton of potential this year, but I did think the same last year, and he had a handful of really good games. But I, I would love to see that that full season consistency where he is just constantly just a downfield threat and then putting up points every single game. He had, I believe, 400 total yards the last time these two teams played. Yeah, 400 total yards. But Tanner Johnson actually led the team with 623 total yards, over 300 receiving and throwing yards last season when these two teams met for the second time. And they will be without Tanner Johnson this week. So obviously that's a massive loss, but it is really nice to have Orion Cable back in the lineup. Do you think Orion Cable in this particular matchup works better as a primary target or as a decoy off of which you set up sort of an underneath attack mm. thing? Cole Davis brand, Ben Sadoke bringing Topher Davis back into the handler set, Willie Stewart taking looks when he can as a thrower. You know, it. 
in week one, they just sort of hit the cable smash button and just <laughs> let him take over in the second half of that win against Philly. And I it feels it. like if they try that against New York, it won't end well just because of the personality that the Empire have and their ability to rotate off of Cable. It's not to say that Cable might not win a matchup here and there, but I don't think he'll be able to just dunk on New York's defense for four straight quarters when it's, again, Antoine Davis, Marcus Brownlee, Jeff Babbitt. Even Ryan Holmes can do a little bit of work in deep space against bigger guys. Like yeah. If they wanted to, they could put Ben Yacht on Cable should, they, should something go crazy awry and they need more help. Um, yeah, Empire no, that's and equipped to deal with bigger offensive opponents. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I didn't think about the possible cable decoy, but you might be onto something because he is kind of the the lone imposing big on Boston's offensive line, and and he's gonna draw a lot of attention just <laughs> because of his size alone. Like everyone is gonna need to keep track of Orion Cable at all times. So yeah, that that could easily open things up underneath but seeing how boston played this past weekend like i just don't i don't know if they're gonna really change their game plan off of this deep attack like we didn't really see a ton of sudoke davis brand willie stewart like slowly working the disc up like they want to take shots and i think that's what they're built on and while i while i think cable could be a very effective decoy I just kind of have to see it from Boston that they're willing to, you know, not lean as much on the deep game if it means, you know, just more throws and, and longer possessions to work the disc upfield. And then going over to the other side of disc, we I mentioned Cam Warner being active for Boston. They're going to have Chris Bartoli, Davis Whitehead, Gus Haflin, Eugene LaRue, Alex Sanadio. They'll have... Boston starters. However, as we've seen through Boston's beginning of their franchise and how the defense has played so far, I don't know if they have any answers for this Empire offense, particularly when they look to get back on track after kind of a weird week two performance against Philly. They were inconsistent after looking virtually flawless against a really good DC defense in week one. Um, We could sit here and again talk about Ben Yacht, He's the MVP, Ryan Osgar. He plays like an MVP, Jack Williams. He plays like an MVP. I kind of want to zero in for a second on Solomon Rushmeyer Bailey and what he Ooh, has meant to this team and just kind of how him evolving. And I, I wrote about this too, that we, and we talked about a little bit that, you know, they bring in this talent. That's what New York does. They bring in talent. They're a nexus for free agents, big city, mm-hmm. lots of talent, but Growing Rushmeyer Bailey into the various sort of utility roles that they can plug him into now and watching him be able to not just handle those roles, but play making all of them. I, he just feels like one of those pieces that Boston doesn't have. Sure, like let's say Boston sort of wins even the top end matchups. One of the problems with the 2022 Empire is that this depth now gets to you. Even if you handle as Philly kind of did a little bit, in week two, the top end and contain some of yeah. the damage that Yacht and Osgar and John Lithio can inflict on you downfield. Yacht, Yacht had an off game. Yeah, Philly did a great job containing him. Yeah, shout out uh, Ed Brown at times. He looked really good in his rookie debut, the team for Philly. 
Um, really excited to watch him. Uh, but it, it's it's their balance now, right? Like that's what hurts you. That's what got to yeah. Philly. That's even kind of what got to DC. Obviously, Osgar went off, but Charles Weinberg had a really great game. SRB had a really good game. Elliot Chartok had a really good game in week one. You know, like yeah. It, last year it was Jack Williams doing Mortal Kombat finishers to your team at the end of games, right? Like that was the right. twenty twenty one. They, they needed it, yeah. They right. like they relied uh, they relied on the Jack Williams. It was it was like sure. if the user took over their team as a video game and was just like I'm running it through the stars, and yeah. and we saw the limitations of that, and like this year through two wins and kind of what seems to be the pattern going forward is that they don't have to do that at all. And we talked about that after week one, how scary that is. And I just feel like this is one of those matchups where that scariness becomes apparent again, because glory have a lot of talent, no doubt, like with Sadok and cable and Cole Davis brand and uh, Topher Davis uh, on and on and on. But so did the empire. And now they go deep, you know? Yeah. They got, they got Rushmer Bailey able to just, activate at will against Boston's, you know, fifth, sixth best defender. Like that's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. He had, he had a really nice block last game too, Ruschmeyer Bailey. Like he's, he's been had, he's had nice very active. Game. Yeah, very active around the disc, but also, yeah, I feel like he's still underrated defensively too. Even though he spent, you know, the vast majority of last season playing D-line, I believe. Or I no, no, he, he was on he they, was on offense they, they primarily. Yeah. Yeah, but there was a chunk of last year where he was like their starting D-line handler. And yeah, the D-line for Boston, the counterattack, I, I'm still skeptical of, but it does get a lot better this week compared to what they had in Canada. Brendan McCann is one name that I Huge think difference. is just, yeah, just a massive upgrade from whatever they were fielding this past weekend. And guys like Eugene LaRue where you have guys now that that are active threats when they have the disc in their hands where it felt like last weekend in Canada it was just hope that they can force a turnover close to the opposing end zone and only have to complete a few throws to punch it in but i'm excited to see boston's d line like hopefully bounce back they will absolutely have their work <laughs> cut out for them though against new york and boston by the way they've allowed 20 plus scores in 11 of their 15 games as a franchise so this this game but i will say i mean their last game against new york they did hold them to under 20 so you know take that for what you will i i think this game could feature a lot of scoring and it's not it's still not like an imposing boston defense but like we've established they are getting a lot of guys back this week that were not there in canada so every little bit helps one other thing, and going back half a step to you, bringing up Ruchmeyer Bailey's block, and in general, I wanted to talk about the Empire offense's defense off of turnovers. When they commit yeah. a turnover, they don't allow breaks anymore. Um, against DC, they, they gave them four defensive break opportunities, and DC converted three of them, but you're not going to win a game, really, by converting three defensive breaks. It's just not enough to tilt the scoring yeah. advantage in your favor with your defense. And this last week against the Phoenix, Phoenix had eight defensive break opportunities, a little bit more breathing room for any kind of chance <laughs> to come back, but they were only able to convert two. And I mean, you look at this 
Empire roster, when you talk about how talented talented they are offensively, but when they match up on you defensively too, they have Ben Yacht, who finished with 20-plus blocks last year, was top 10 in the league in takeaways. Uh, they now have SRB running around, who's getting all these kind of like tweener, poach, in-the-lane blocks at really mm-hmm. opportune moments to earn the disc back for the Empire offense. They've got Jack Williams, who had three blocks this last week, including one that entered into the top 10 plays for the league. You know, like, if should you even get the chance at a break against the Empire O-line, you then have to work it against them, which is proving to be a harder and harder task. Right. And the just to sum it up, it's like like the Empire has such good players on their offense. Like it's there's they're all such good all around players. So yeah, it's probably one of the top O lines that I would want playing defense in the entire league. Just pure talent on this team is really unmatched. Do you think Boston has a chance at the upset though? What needs to go right for Boston to win? Do they need to just turn it and turn it into a complete shootout and hope for the best? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like like I said, with their with their D-line defense or D-line offense this past weekend, I know they're adding all these guys back, but I still don't trust that they're going to really punch in enough breaks to get it done against New York. Like you just mentioned, New York does not allow many break opportunities, let alone break conversions. And to me, if it just turns into an offensive shootout and teams just sort of ratchet up their defense down the stretch, I think Boston is capable of coming away with some big plays late in the game to build a lead at some point. But I mean, if you ask me to make a prediction, I would say New York by at least three and a half right now. So I don't think Boston will do it, but there is a world, you know, they're playing at home too. And I I think if they had Tanner Johnson, I would put the line at more like two, one and a half to two. But without Tanner Johnson, it, it is hard to see the Boston offense being as efficient as what we know the New York offense can be. It's funny that you say a shootout might be most conducive for Boston to win. And I I would agree with you off the top of my head, but if you look back at their last matchup where New York only won by one goal, 18 to 17 at Boston, it was under 30, you know, 35 total goals, under 20 goals. Not at all a shootout. Boston keeping it close with some defensive playmaking. Now, (laughs) Guess what Boston's break opportunities were, and guess how many they converted. I I unfortunately just looked at the stat page, oh, but okay. I'll let you I'll let you break it to the listeners. Two of nineteen. They were two of nineteen on break opportunities. What's crazy? Two of that's not even two of twelve. The... No. What? No. Two. No, no, no. I'm seeing two of twelve. Two of nineteen. Is that two right? Two of nineteen. Eleven percent. You're thinking D-line wow. conversions. I'm looking at break ch- chances. Sorry. Oh, break chances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. So yes. Boston was 2 of 19. <laughs> so this goes back to last year, too, with the, the defense getting opportunities but being a, unable to punch them home. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like until we see a team do that, especially against New York, where you just you know they're not going to get that many opportunities – it's it's hard to 
win a game when you're not able to break your opponent enough. So should we move on to the other East Division notable games, most most notably um, Montreal Royale's road trip? Uh, Royale right now tied for first place in the East Division, 2-0 and uh, with New York. Um, they will be traveling to Philadelphia on Friday and then at D.C. on Saturday. The at-Philly game figures to be a very important matchup for head-to-head tiebreakers should Montreal and Philadelphia compete for that third playoff spot in the East, as we sort of assume that they will. Philadelphia is 0-2, but as I wrote about in my power rankings this week, they've shown potential on both sides of the disc. It's just been inverted in their first two games. (laughs) Right. You know, like the first game, their offense looked amazing with the presence of Jordan Ryan. Bryce Dunn was a amazing target downfield for them. James Pollard got more opportunity being a playmaker on offense. He did that also in week two. They scored 24 goals. And then in week two, they put up 15 on the road in New York while their defense does one of the more commendable jobs defending the Empire offense we've seen recently. Um, If Phoenix can put together a full game on both sides of the disc, they would look like the third best team in this division. That has yet to happen, though. And it feels like it's beginning to be the same Phoenix team where there are these nice pieces. There just isn't quite the sense of a whole yet. Right. And they do have more active sort of like top end roster guys this week than they had either the past two weeks. Like Jordan Ryan is back in the lineup. He did not play against New York. Alex Thorne did not play the first week, nor did Greg Martin. And they're both active this week. So it's the first time. New York. Yeah. And so it's the first time we're, we're seeing, you know, what's probably pretty close to their top end lineup. And on the other hand, you have Montreal, who's of course having to travel from Canada. I mean, their roster looks more or less the same as it has. I, I think they're going to travel well based on that. But yeah, I don't know. The Royal and Phoenix feel kind of comparable in a way. Like Montreal hasn't, I'm not sold on Montreal as having... I Yes, I think they have the inside track at the three spot in the East Division, but I don't think it's really even theirs to lose necessarily. Like It still feels like there's going to be a ton of competition from Philly, from Boston, and even potentially Ottawa, uh, where you know Montreal, I thought they could have absolutely stomped Boston and, and really run away with that game. They ended up winning by four, but watching them play, like there's still some some kinks to kind of smooth out both offensively and defensively. You know, Jacob Brissett has been fantastic for them through their first two games, but it does feel like sometimes it, it might be too too Brissett centric of an offense and maybe become a little predictable in that way. They they have playmakers kind of all over the field, but I don't know. I, I don't think we've seen the best game yet from Montreal, just like I think we haven't seen the best game yet from Philly. So this game is going to be super telling. I, I'm very excited to watch. I think Montreal really misses their two French goal scorers from the past two seasons in Quentin Bonad and Sasha Płatsokolski. Um, oh, just yeah. having that, that their system loves ha- having a main target who they can just feed goals to. And it doesn't, mm feel like they quite yet have that this year 
Malika Gersamar is playing great. Nabil Shaush is playing great. You know, I think the Royal offense looks about where it left off in 2021, but they missed that main target and they really miss Vincent Lemieux. Um, we talk a lot about Brissett and his throwing talents. Lemieux looks very much like a Kevin Quinlan clone at times. He can just launch from the hip, forehand and backhand side, virtually full field. And Montreal's ability to space Quinlan Brissett, who is basically an ambidextrous thrower at times, and Lemieux sideline to sideline and attack mm-hmm. vertically from any angle thereby. Like if they just swung the disc, they could go from one side to the other and hit you 80 yards on the break side. Um, that's <laughs> right. what made them so potent in the Canada Cup. And I haven't seen that as readily available for Montreal in 2022. It, it seems like due to a couple personnel shifts, they're not quite as potent in attacking deep space with their throws. Brissette is, Quinlan is, but they're, they're missing Lemieux. Yeah, for sure. It's hard to drop from three primary deep shooters on an offense to only two. You know, that's a 33% decrease in just huck opportunities, if you think about it that way. And yeah, they've like, I think OJ Samar and even Shaush, like we've seen them sort of flash more throwing ability this season. Maybe that's a little bit out of necessity because Lemieux has been out. But right, I think Lemieux brings an entirely different dimension to this offense where he is like a just a balance piece between him and Brissett. Like if you cut off the throwing lane from one of them, they're going to get it to the other and still take that deep shot. So they're definitely missing him. I, I hope he's back for them soon. But, you know, I, I think this game could still go either way. I, I think Philly is very capable and I think they're going to have a very solid home crowd for home opener this year. And we saw them take down Boston last year. We saw them nearly do it again this year. There's going to be a lot of fighting at this level of the division for that third playoff spot. And so I, I'll ask you the, the line question. Do you feel like you'd favor Philly in this game? Do you feel like you'd go Montreal? The line feels to me like it would be around one and a half either way you put it. Let's walk through the logic a little. I think just in a vacuum, top of my head, I agree that one and a half is right. Now, how you split it is going to be the real telling part. <laughs> Point blank, I would just take Montreal negative one and a half. But I think in this matchup, particularly looking at these lineups, I like Philly, particularly for how they shut down New York's deep attack last week. That bodes really well against a Royale team that can't really help itself looking for hucks, right? Yeah, well, and they did it without James Pollard playing defense, right? Like, he he stuck to offense for the most of last game, too. And the ability to still stop deep shots when your biggest, most imposing defender is not even out there on the field, I I think that's huge. And, of course, you know, they, they have the benefit of if they ever do turn, down, turn it over on offense, they've got big James Pollard patrolling the deep space. I'm really interested to see where they play him and Bryce Dunn, because Dunn was a breakout offensive star in week one. You know, he had career highs and goals scored and in receiving yardage being the main target for Jordan Ryan. Mm -hmm. Without Ryan last week, it felt like Pollard playing an offense was an easy decision. With now Ryan and 
uh, Alex Thornback as potential throwers in the backfield for Philadelphia. I'm wondering if Pollard splits time, if he continues to play that kind of striker role where they let him take a green light with the disc when he gets it upfield, if, you know, he's sort of a end of quarter uh, end zone option for them. Like, I, I, I'm just curious because I feel like he would be a, a complete stalwart for them on defense. There's not really a challenge for him on Montreal's O-line when it comes to in-air battles. Like, Chaush might be able to, but Pollard against a somewhat shorter Royale lineup might impose a lot for the Philly back end on their D-line. Yeah, that's true. And and they are a team, just anecdotally, I've noticed, they they have a tendency to float some hooks, like just hangers that need someone to get underneath it and i think they they have guys that are really good at coming down with those like oj samar and even julian seneschal has shown an ability to do that hayden stone is another guy that's active for the first time for montreal he looked pretty good in the air playing with austin last season but yeah i mean compared to james pollard you, you take pollard over all those guys you know nine times out of ten so i i'm interested also i think mark sands is a key addition for this Phoenix team that hasn't played yet this year, who has a history of being, you know, more or less a top cutter on their O-line. Like it'll probably be him and Greg Martin scoring a lot of goals this game. In my mind, that kind of leaves Dunn maybe on deep. I don't know. It's hard to disrupt the, the Ryan to Dunn combo that we saw in week one. Like how do you just get rid of that completely? I mean, Dunn was a really good, good deep receiver in that first week so I I think Philly has the potential to have like a pretty solid cutting core and have James Pollard on defense which is cool they they suddenly feel like they they have a pretty deep roster of personnel we say that and yet Philly still struggles a lot of times to hit the 20 goal mark I'm wondering if with Ryan and Thorne and some consistency on the offense if that will actually change or if it'll still be that kind of huge firecracker like in week one they put up 24 and then like three straight weeks of 15 18 19 games you know yeah they're they're a streaky team right like they they feel like they can be pretty hit or miss pretty hot or cold they were within a goal of new york in the fourth a week ago you know (laughs) they are punchy it's just again it's it's when they can find that consistency on both sides of the disc i think has eluded them for a couple seasons there's right obviously potential in this roster um but the throwers definitely help though the the thorn and ryan additions playing together and and having sean mod back there at times but also allowing him to get downfield more like it it feels like they have the right pieces to strike a good balance offensively speaking of how to match up on philadelphia's throwers i really want to see how iwan kohoner stacks up against philly he did a good job on sadok in Montreal last weekend, despite Sadok uh, completing a lot of passes and doing some damage. If you look at just the box score, Kohonair still had three blocks. He did a lot to pressure Sadok and just sort of force Boston into hucking it a lot, getting frustrated, getting bored and resorting to hucks. I feel like that was a result of Kohonair, mm-hmm. Montreal's pressure on Boston's handlers, uh, especially in day two of a game. It'll be Interesting to see if they can apply the same sort of pressure, knowing that then they have to go and face arguably the most active handler core in the league 
in DC on Saturday, the next day. Um, <laughs> we can yeah. transition into that now where Royale will face Philly on Friday. And then the next day they have to go and face DC Breeze, who have had a week off after losing a narrow game in the week one game of the week to New York. Uh, DC will be returning uh, 2021 all AUDL handler Johnny Malks, making his 2022 debut after being sidelined with a little injury in week one. Um, it it figures to be a tough Saturday night for Montreal. I, I suspect <laughs> it's going to be a takeout game for DC for their frustrations yeah. after performing really well in week one and just being out executed by an almost you know perfect New York game. Uh, DC is going to be fielding basically all of their starters and they're just so deep and they run really well. Like this is probably the most athletic DC team to date. And that just feels like a lot for a Montreal team that has a tendency to give up a lot of goals, even when they're full strength and playing one game in a weekend, let alone facing a DC team for the first time in three years that I don't think that they've really seen yet. Right. Montreal hasn't faced a team like DC in a minute. <laughs> no, it's it's been a very long time. Yeah, I mean, they last played in 2019, but even that DC team, as good as they were, was very different than the current iteration of their roster. It's going to be a, a rough outing for Montreal, is is my prediction. I, like, I could see DC just totally running away with it, winning by at least eight goals, I think is within reason. You just you look at their roster and you just think about the things DC does well, and I feel like their defense has like almost a, a guaranteed spot to just take Montreal out of their rhythm. Like I think the Royal have been susceptible to a bit of streaky offense at times. Like if they're not clicking, if Brissett is hanging some of those hucks, like DC is just gonna eat those up. And then you look at the Royal defense, and I don't know how. Even, even with a guy like Kahuna, who's a fantastic handler defender, you know, are there enough pieces around him to deal with Malks, Tyler Monroe, Rowan McDonald, Alan Kolick if he plays offense again? You know, they... Zach Norbaum. Just Zach Norbaum, Christian Boxley, right? <laughs> the list the list goes on. We could literally Jeff list Wodach all 20 names. Jeff Wodach looks really good as that connector piece whenever he plays for them. Yeah, even if Montreal can take away one or two of these options, you know, DC has such a, there's so much security in their system where if anyone does get taken out by their matchup, they're like way more than capable of just distributing the load to the rest of the guys on the field or finding another mismatch to exploit. I I just have full faith in DC to really beat Montreal in all facets of this game, honestly. DC is one of those teams where if I was more into fantasy, they would frustrate me because they're too deep and I would never <laughs> be able to pick the right week that a certain player yes. performs well. I'd be like, oh, I this agree. is the week that Tyler Monroe and Christian Box would go off. And then it's like Musa Ja and Jeff Wodach, you know, and then try to pick them the next week. And then it goes back to the two. I didn't pick that way. You know, like that's how right, DC... Right feels they're very rhizomatic they just sort of fill in all of the gaps they go to the routes that make the most sense for them in any given matchup and consistently try to exploit those opportunities and that's what makes them so dangerous they're they're almost boring in their effectiveness at times i think we saw that a lot in 2020 (laughs) 
They would just yeah. steamroll teams that weren't New York at times. You know, it, if it wasn't New York or Atlanta, they were just rolling teams in the East. Even Boston, they had that. They basically pitched the perfect team game in Week Three of twenty twenty one. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Do we think this game has Boston level potential? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I I think what was that like a thirty a thirty two to twenty DC win? I believe. Yeah, they were like perfect think, on break opportunities. Yeah, I think the underrated part of this Breeze team this year too is that it's going to have a little bit more of an attitude than in years past. I think that they want to take more. I think that the past two years have been about building around all their young talent, getting the right opportunities for them, getting everyone high touches and opportunities. And 2022 Breeze is sort of like the take it, it's ours Breeze. Like they expect to win a championship this year internally. Yeah. And I think that this is just one of those games where them being 0-1, anyone outside of New York should just kind of fear them. In any division, I think, I would fear the Breeze. You know, I have them what, number three in my power rankings? And I mean it. You know, they looked like the third best team, even with a loss in week one to New York. They are a mm-hmm. really good team. I totally agree. Yeah, I think the sky is really the limit for DC this year. I mean, they, of course, have to get through New York at some point if they would like to make it to their first championship weekend. But I, I agree. I think they have potential just to roll right through the rest of the East Division. And now that I've said this into a recorded microphone, oh, upset Montreal for sure. Or something. They're going to destroy them. Yeah, Nebio thirty, 30 to twenty Montreal. No, yeah. no solutions for him. They're not going to yeah. know how to pronounce his game or, or his name or keep him out of the end zone. <laughs> oh man, that would uh, be that would be a fun upset. Not for DC fans, but I, that yeah, would maybe I, be the most most unpredictable upset of this week. Either it goes to chalk or the most unpredictable upset happens, which would probably, I think, almost be Montreal at DC. That's up there for yeah. the biggest. I think it is. Yeah. Well, Tampa over Carolina would be the biggest. Yeah. Tampa I'll, I'll give them Carolina that. would be pretty big. Yeah. But let's move on to a couple quick hitters as we kind of wrap up previewing week three. Um, I think we should start in Texas. Dallas has an odd doubleheader, an away and then a home game, uh, Friday, Saturday. On Friday night, they will travel to Austin to face their rival, Seoul, for the second time this season already. Seoul, of course, winning back in week one in Dallas. Uh, Seoul will be fielding basically their full roster, while Dallas is still dealing with a fair amount of absences and injuries, most notably, I think, Griffin Miller, Kaplan Maurer, Carson Wilder, um, there's one other name that I'm... Thomas Slack, Michael Thomas. Mathis. Thank you. Dylan Larberg Mathis, is out. Mathis is very good for them in week one as a receiver, main target for Jimmy Zura. However, Dallas does have the debut of Captain Ben Lewis to look forward to this weekend. Lewis, of course, uh, one of the best playmakers on defense from 2021 in the league. Uh, he finished with a career-high 29 goals to go along with 20-plus blocks on the year. One of only a handful of individuals to do that alongside of, uh, I think, Jeff Babbitt and Ben Yacht are some of the other players that had 20-plus blocks and 20-plus goals last year. Um, it still feels like Dallas is 
in the works. And Austin is Austin is taking a second to figure out their footing, but I Austin I think is gonna pick up really quickly. I think they didn't show everything in week one against Dallas. I I agree with that. Right. I, I think there is just a little too much talent on this Austin roster for that week one game to be all they can be this year. I mean, they won't have uh, Ethan Pollock this week. He was playing a lot of defense in their first game. So not, you know, not having that, that huge defender on defense is tough, but Mick Walter, did Mick Walter play the first game? He didn't. No. Mick, yeah. Mick Walter was inactive. So they, ha- they add Mick Walter lose Pollock. So they do still have, you know, a six, six plus imposing defender back there. I think their defense to me is is probably the biggest room for improvement. Like their offense looked very strong in that first game. Like yes. with Radak making his sole debut finally, he looked so comfortable as their center handler. Mark Evans slotted right into that sort of cutter hybrid role where he is you know has a very full arsenal of throws hitting guys like Evan Swiatek and Kyle Henke downfield. They, they have the pieces on offense to just be a really solid unit all year. It, it really is the defense to me that I'm, I'm sort of waiting for them to really hit their stride. And I know they're capable of it. Like, didn't they lead the league in blocks per game last season? They did. Yeah. And Joey Wiley had a huge highlight in week one and, and was all over the highlight reel last season too, just laying out and, and skying over guys. He's a fantastic athlete. Uh, Zach Slayton is another guy who I don't think he played in the first game either. He, he is active this week. I was going to mention him. He was a yeah. He was a nice playmaker for them last year in spare time. Yeah, he also looked great just playing for Texas in the college scene too. Like he is a very solid all around playmaker. I feel like like only watching AUDL, I, I lose sight of how well rounded some of these guys are, and I think Zach Slayton brings a very unique skill set to the Soul defense. Absolutely. I mean, you look at his slash line from last year, seven assists, 17 goals, 10 blocks, uh, over 1,600 yards of total offense while splitting time primarily on defense. That's yeah. that's a really underrated rookie year from Slayton. Yeah, really right. balanced. I'm really excited to see if he takes a, a notch higher. He's kind of like uh, not not quite as talented as Arushmeyer Bailey, but similarly somebody who internally develops on their team who can suddenly, you know, almost maybe unexpectedly to everyone but the team, uh, elevate them to a new level. I feel like Slayton has that potential for them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And a couple other debuts, I realize they, they have a handful of 2022 debuts this week. Elliot Moore is active for the first time, and he was very, very consistent for them last season playing mostly defense but really switching over a good amount too to offense i i anticipate him to be largely active on the defensive side so it's like guys like him slayton wiley matthew armor i i'm kind of waiting for these guys to just have like statement games defensively you move too quickly through more because we have the reunion of the stench bros man oh yeah yeah yeah. and smelling it more of course, I yeah, I, I was gonna it, mention it. Years, I was gonna, yeah, they won a college title in D three before they reunited <laughs> on the Soul this weekend. I think that that's a pretty uh, interesting storyline heading into this year. Is 
do the do the kind of ascendant young talent led by Moore and Henke on this soul team really take hold? I think it's one of those things where in ever ever since return to play, ever since the beginning of 2021, the notion that like older, more established players will hold out against the growing crop of young talent hasn't really held true. And I'm interested to see if the soul can continue to embody that kind of meta, I think, um, progression of the sport where it just feels like younger players with the talent can sort of take it if they want it right now. If any, if uh, Najee or or Patrick with Austin Solar listening right now, can we get an O point where we have the Henke brothers and the Stench Bros on the same line? So you get Kyle Henke, Mark Henke, and Elliot Moore playing together. It's too bad the Chamberses are inactive. Otherwise, they could throw in some. Ah, you're right. Too. Right, I know. The Heaths as well. One of the Heaths won't be active. Um. So much potential. I know. Well, the, the season full, is young. They could run a full brother plus Stench Bros lineup. <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, if you're the soul, you, you probably put Elliot more on defense, though, don't you think? Like, I, I feel like they have yeah. enough offensive pieces where it doesn't really make sense to slot him over. He continues to look like somebody with just the slightest bit of adjustment to his completion percentage would be a star level D line like mm-hmm. quarterback you know like he just has that presence he did it and he does it really well typically against dallas this is this is kind of a blood feud matchup for more and so i could see a really big performance for him against dallas he was amazing against them in their week two win in 2021 when they upset dallas in austin uh he was just everywhere it seemed like i think he finished with three blocks on the night all of them layouts mm-hmm. uh, he's becoming a really interesting defensive playmaker and I think he has the handling talent to just be kind of a, a all-around talent for them on the D-line. Yeah, they they have a lot of... I think they just have a lot of guys that I, I could see playing either way. Like, even even like if they have to switch Swiatek over to D-line occasionally, I think that's you say doable. No. You have... They don't well, have to do that. They don't have to, but I, I'm just looking at like guys like Eric Broadbeck, who was an offensive star for them in 2021, just played 11 D points to 5 O points in their opening weekend game. So I, I just think they're they're very deep, and, and they have probably more offensive ability than they know what to do with at this point. So I don't know. I kind of wonder if they will play with some of those rotations and maybe add a bit more firepower to the D-line. So after playing at Austin on Friday night, Dallas will then turn around and host the Minnesota Windchill coming off of their 24 to 21 loss to Chicago in week two, who will be traveling down to the heat in Texas. And just a little insider knowledge, this Minnesota team has not practiced in anything close to the kind of sweltering 90 plus degree heat they're about to encounter in Dallas on Saturday night. And so I know that we just said that Montreal at DC would probably be the upset of the weekend. If Dallas can somehow trip up Minnesota to an 0-2 start, and especially after kind of likely losing to Austin on Friday, that would really throw a monkey wrench into the Central Division. Yes, it would. It's a, it's a revenge game for Abe Coffin, so that's fun. Andrew Roy is also active for the first time for Minnesota. 
Nick Vogt is yeah. So it, like it's a it's a more talented windchill team than what we saw this past weekend against Chicago. They will be missing Cole Jurek. Will Brandt is out again. But generally, I mean, they they have a definitely a better lineup of throwers, and so I I, I don't know. I feel like even in the Texas heat. They should be fine against this Dallas team, right? Is it really going to be 90-plus, though, on yeah. Saturday? Yeah. Wow. It's Dallas in May, man. They don't mess around yeah. out there. It's, it's going to be different. It's going to be different for That's Minnesota, a, I, for I sure. Just, I think it's one of those games that is, on paper, Minnesota has a clear advantage given their talent. I think especially with the return of Andrew Roy, who is so sorely missing from their lineup this last weekend and Mm -hmm. I think will be much needed in a Dallas game that figures to have wind. There's always wind in Dallas. And so I think having a player like Roy surrounded by the kind of talent that Minnesota will be bringing leads Minnesota to be favored pretty heavily going into this, like maybe negative four and a half. But if Dallas can keep their legs underneath of them or they somehow preserve some rhythm or momentum from their Friday night game, We've seen teams do pretty well in the second game of back-to-backs so far in the beginning parts of this season. It <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. And by the same token, they might be completely taxed from two days of playing in the Texas heat too. It's it's such an odd <laughs> right, right. doubleheader for Dallas. There's both the potential for the wheels to just come off, and there's the potential for them to sort of rally at home and get a quality win over a Minnesota team that was expected to quote-unquote, win the division, according to some Dumbo pundits with preseason predictions who look at... Yeah, who would, who would think that? Makeup stuff. I will say, Dallas is adding Thomas Slack and Carson Wilder to the lineup on Saturday, who won't be playing oh. Friday. They're currently listed as inactive. So, you know, a little, little bit of extra help for that second game of the doubleheader. Yeah, reinforcements, cavalry. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, what do you think is more likely? That, that the wheels fall off for Dallas, as, as you said, or they win one of these games? I plead the fifth. Uh, okay. I, I, um, probably... It's a podcast. It's probably the former, to be quite honest. I think Austin's a really good team. I feel bad about where I put them in the power rankings. I just think that their placement in the South is weighing against them. And until I see how they stack up against Atlanta and Carolina, it schools out on them a little bit. Um, I, I don't know. And I it think is, it is, think- it is nice. They're getting to play Minnesota so early in the season and at home. Cause like we've talked about with Minnesota, like if they are, if they are going to be experimenting with their rotations for a while, you know, they like Dallas might just catch them, you know, playing around a bit a bit too much and, and not quite having fully integrated the new pieces. So definitely not out of the question for Dallas to pull off the upset. No, and, you know, as much as we make it sound all doom and gloom if Minnesota were to lose that game, there's pretty recent narrative around what happens with good teams who are trying to figure out how to balance all the talent in their lineup <laughs> for 0-2 to start a season and how that turns out for them. Yeah, you like you could win a title, for example. Yeah, in twenty twenty one, if you were from, say, a state like North Carolina. Um, yeah. So you know, like, it wouldn't be the worst thing either for Minnesota to go down there, continue to f- 
figure out what works, continue to find exactly where Abe Coffin fits for them, continue to let Quinn Snyder go off, continue to let Andrew Roy do Andrew Roy things. You know, it would both be wildly detrimental to them to lose a game outside the of the division for Minnesota, but it also mm-hmm. wouldn't be the end of the world because they are still talented enough where, yeah, they lose these two games and then they could still run the table in the central, <laughs> to be quite honest. Right, right. I, I want to get ahead of myself a bit just while we're on the Minnesota train, but they play at Dallas this weekend, then they play at Madison next weekend or in their next game. Do you think that they... I guess what what's your, just give me your record prediction for the next two Minnesota games. Do they win both? Do they lose both? Let's let's talk about let's set that just to the side or let's put it in the microwave. Ah, put a little bit of come on. No, and let's talk okay. about Madison at Indianapolis this weekend because I okay. think that that sort of sure. dictates how we talk about Minnesota at Madison in Week Four without getting ahead of ourselves. Like, let's talk the Week Three Central Division matchup that. It's going to be very important for determining the third playoff spot in the Central. Um, Madison will be going to Indianapolis on Saturday night. Both teams won their games in Week 2 in expected fashion. Madison getting their 100th victory at home over Pittsburgh into Indianapolis, setting the two-date season single-game high scoring of 33 in a game by blowing out Detroit at home. It's an offensive versus defensive style appetizing matchup where Indy's fast paced kind of timing and efficiency monster led by Keegan North and Cameron Brock will face off against their oldest rivals and one of the best defensive teams in the league, Madison. Um, I don't know what to expect from this matchup at all. I think (laughs) Madison has had a little bit of a rough time traveling to Indy sort of in the past three years, but then last year's game, they kind of blew them out in Indianapolis when they went there for the week five game of the week. Um, Madison will be without Victor Luo this weekend, which could be very detrimental for them, but getting to play indoors feels like the kind of environment where the Radicals offense that struggled to have a four-quarter rhythm in week two will maybe have that in week three at Indy. There's just something about playing indoors where you don't get tested on your throws and you can kind of really get confidence in your looks. And given given all the tinkering on Madison's lineups and the way that they are a sort of uh, hot, cold team right now of shooters, for lack of a better word to say it, um, I think that getting a game at Indy could be very beneficial for this Radicals offense. It could be. I I mean the no no Victor Luo, no Tom Annan, no Sterling Kanaki, who was basically their top receiver last week. They are definitely missing some pieces on offense. I I think they're just gonna either live or die by Kai Marcus, right? Like Kai Marcus in an indoor environment, with the amount he was chucking the disc deep last week against Pittsburgh, I I think he's got probably a better shot of completing more of those this week against Indy. Like I I expected, like you said, it's the indoor environment that favors Madison because I mean, it also favors Indy, of course, but it favors a team like Madison who 
has such a strong defensive identity and does lack consistency on offense. Like anything, the anything the environment can do to help out the Madison offense is obviously great for them. Right. But you know, if we have, <laughs> if we have Kai Marcus just chucking up shots all game, like I, I just don't know if I, I trust him enough as a thrower. Like he, you know, he's no, he's no Ryan Osgar. He's no Keegan North. I think he's going to be susceptible to more turnovers than anyone on the Alley Cats. Like, they played so efficiently on offense in that first week. And, yeah, it came against Detroit. But Keegan North, like we talked about in the recap episode, just exploded. And and with consistent deep throwers that Indy has, like, that's kind of the difference to me is that in the indoor environment, like, yeah, if you have one – great deep thrower that that could be good but if they get out of rhythm then you're kind of in trouble with india it feels like they have enough guys between keegan north levi jacobs you know rick gross has developed a, a deep throwing game xavier Payne can launch the disc you know they they have guys that that are also all very comfortable in playing in this indoor environment so i don't know i i'm a bit worried for the radicals if i'm being honest this week I think two players are going to come into big factors for the Radicals, and that's veteran Andrew Meshnick, who is starting to play mm-hmm. on offense this year. I think without Tom Annan, he's going to be facilitating a lot more from the backfield, and he has traditionally played very, very well at Indianapolis. And he's one of those players who, like Sterling Kanaki, when he's in the lineup, he gives you defensive off of the turn. So if they do happen to turn it indoors, Meshnik is going to be there to provide blocks. He got two blocks in week two. Um, He was averaging nearly 20 yards per touch on offense, too. He was kind of the the dunker or shooter role in their O-line. He could be more of a, again, facilitator this week with the absence of Annan. But I think he's going to make a big, big showing in week three. And then there is the debut of the other Kai on this team, Kai DiLorenzo, who is a D3 collegiate star, who the Radicals are very excited about to be joining the offense. And again, he gets to debut in an indoor environment, get all of his throws calibrated quickly because there's going to be no wind and, Mm -hmm. you know, a D emphasis on defensive pressure a lot of times just with the ability to throw anything you want virtually. Um, I don't know. I I like the Radicals as good as Indianapolis looked just blowing out Detroit in their home opener last week and as good as Keegan North looks in their return. This figures to be the matchup that Indy might be missing Travis Carpenter because to get at Madison's defense truly and to not have them linger and possibly still convert breaks when they have the opportunity I think that they'll need the true balance of talent that Travis Carpenter provides, right? And and I think he's he's how you crack a defense like Madison's. Because without him, it just staggers yeah. the matchups a little bit where even without a couple of their starters, Madison can still scheme and take things away from you. I am I am always interested to see on like how Madison's defense limits indie in the indoor environment when it is such a offense favoring environment like madison is the team to potentially turn this from a shootout into more of a lower scoring game and yeah it's it it is guys like carpenter that 
make the Alley Cats offense better suited to handle, you know, whatever zone looks or defensive looks Madison throws. I I still feel like the Alley Cats can have the just the overall cohesiveness of their O-line, you know, start to overcome the Carpenter loss. Like it's not by no means like no one's going to replace Carpenter altogether, but they do have like a, a pretty well distributed approach of throwers and guys that can get downfield. Like, I, I don't know. I look at Madison, like who is going to be the top receiver with, with Kanaki out? Like who's going to be catching goals for them? I don't know that that matters indoors. I think that that would matter more outside. I think indoors, there's such an efficient team, especially in the red zone, where you might see Jacob Wong get seven goals in this game. You might see Avery get six. You know, I mm-hmm. I think that Madison's ability to play a balanced attack will just yield good results in an indoor environment. Jack Kelly could have a big game for them. And this might be the game where you see Kevin Pettit-Scantling taking some offensive reps, you know? Yeah, if that's defense. True. If it's so hard to get a turnover, if there's really no resistance early to Indy's offensive attack, maybe you spell KPS a few points on O-line and just give them some juice, you know? Do you think the Radicals' offense will look similar to what we saw with them in Pittsburgh, or do you think these these absences have them adjust things? I think you'll see... I think you'll still see a fair amount of Hucks. I think that the... uh, the up-tempo deep attack that you saw in week two in their debut is going to be very indicative of how Madison wants to approach their offense this season. I think that they're going to be a little less risk-averse as they've been in mm-hmm. seasons prior. I think around the red zone, you're going to see traditional radical sets, but I think coming downfield, you're going to see more vert stack. You're going to see more Kai Marcus hucking it. You're going to see them try to get the disc out quickly. This week, though, might be a little different with them missing Kanaki and Luo. Because I think... What you saw work so effectively for the Radicals in week two was their ability to balance Kai Marcus's deep shots with Luo's ability to just eviscerate you in the mid-range, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's sort it's of... such how, a nice balance. Yeah, I mean, to draw a comparison to another in-state sport, it's like Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton. It's like Giannis takes care of the paint. That's kind of like Kai Marcus with his power throws. And then Chris Middleton can handle the mid-range scoring. And that's sort of how they rely on Victor Luo. And you can see that last week. He had a handful of receiving yards, too, just kind of always getting in power position, always activating by moving upfield and getting the disc in motion, whereas Marcus is very much of a pocket passer. He's looking to right. get the rock and just unload going downfield. And that can well, be... Well, and that's, that's kind of my concern. Like, I, I think the the indoor environment, like without a true number one receiver downfield, like you need a really solid initiating cutter, like a clear target in the deep space for an offense like that to be effective. And it did, it did feel a bit stagnant or, you know, just like shooter initiated last week against Pittsburgh, which I, I don't know. I I think they're going to miss Victor Luo a lot because I think he generates so much offensive flow for them. And I don't know, I just haven't seen it yet. I mean, obviously, there's just been one game, you know, from guys in the rest of that offense. But I, I'm excited for the other Kai's debut, Kai DiLorenzo. I don't I know what time of his game. but be a big solution to the questions you're asking. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I hope you're right. So the Kai's might also have like a, a thunder lightning approach as well. We might see. We might see. I mean, I got thrown under the bus last week announcing because <laughs> Marcus was wearing Kai DiLorenzo's jersey and I didn't know what he looked like yet. So that was right. a great surprise to me. Um, yeah. We're, we'll learn. We'll learn this week. <laughs> and just maybe lastly, we can touch on LA at San Diego. Uh LA 0-1, San Diego 1-1 after their win at Oakland in week two. Uh, San Diego in exactly the same spot they were in in 2021, where they started off a little slow, 1-1 overall, and then they went on to win 10 regular season games. Um, Feels sort of similar this year for the Growlers, where they're still integrating a fair amount of new pieces, trying some new things and sets and rotations with players. and they get an L.A. team who knows them better than anyone. And while I expect the Growlers to win, this could definitely be a setback game for San Diego should they lose it. They are missing. San Diego is missing Jesse Cohen, Jeff Silverman, Chris Mazur, Tyler Bacon. So a handful of those former aviators will, will not be present for the revenge game. But, you know, Sean McDougal still active. They've still got their their core offensive pieces in place. Goose Helton, Travis Dunn, Tim Okita. I I would be surprised if LA won this game just because I, I really do think the talent level on the San Diego roster is just higher than a lot of these West Division teams. But, you know, we, we see it all the time with LA where we kind of count them out early. They still pull off their one win against San Diego that they've gotten each of the last two seasons. Never seems to matter who they're bringing on their rosters. Like these games are often competitive. And like you mentioned, San Diego starting off slow. It does kind of take them some time to really get in the rhythm of the season, start putting together consistent wins. And so LA getting them early in the season, even though the game is in San Diego, I think their win last year actually was also in San Diego too. LA beat them. So yeah, you, you never know. It, it would be surprising, but on the other hand, it's it's fully possible. And it's probably wrong of me to think that I would be surprised if LA comes out with a win. Yeah, I'll go with the double jinx there. I fully expect San Diego to win <laughs> and then be embarrassed on Tuesday when we come back here and talk about the Aviators' inevitable win. Um, yeah, I know. It feels bound to happen, but whatever. that'll do it for this episode of swing pass week three action starts tomorrow night on watch.audl.tv the first game of the weekend will be montreal at philadelphia but don't forget to uh, tune in for the friday feature seattle at salt lake and then action will continue on Saturday as well with a full lineup of games. Uh, the game of the week will be featured later at night on FS2 between New York at Boston. Thank you as always for tuning in and we will see you on Tuesday. Let's go week three. <laughs>